Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 242, Ghosts and Indigenous Spirits, with guest Owl Going Back. Oh, man. Amanda, I feel like a lot of times I love having guests on the show, but a lot of times our guests are like skeptics who are interested in mythology and folklore and spirits and whatnot. They don't really believe. It is so nice to have a true believer on this podcast. Yeah, Owl was an incredibly like engaged and generous, I think, interviewee. And I could just tell somebody who loves stories. And it was so much fun to be able to talk about all of that with him. If it wasn't, you know, a pandemic and also if I lived in Florida, I would be like asking him if I can like sit by a fire with him for several hours while he just tells me stories. Yeah, I think that would be pretty fantastic. Yeah, it would be. And Julia, if at all possible, I would definitely invite our newest patrons along to enjoy that with us, Alexis and Questy. They join the ranks of the people whose support helps us do this four-hour job. That includes our supporting producer-level patrons, Alicia, Allison, Brian, Deborah, Hannah, Jane, Jessica Kinzer, Jessica Stewart, Justin, Keegan, Nieselkins, Megan Linger, Megan Moon, Phil Fresh, Captain Jonathan, Malachi, Cosmos, Sarah, Scott, and Zazie. And our legend-level patrons. Audra, Chimera or Change, Clara, Drew, Jack Marie, J. Bay Bay, Key, Lada, Morgan, Morgan H., Necro Royalty, and BM Yep Scotty. Whenever there is a fire where spooky campfire stories are being told, they always have s'mores. They have like an infinite amount of s'mores. So true. So true. <laughs> Speaking of uh, campfires, s'mores, hanging out, chatting, what have you been reading, watching, and listening to lately, Julia? So listen, we've talked to Becky Chambers so much on this podcast, even when we were interviewing her. But I just finished her newest book, which is A Psalm for the Wild Built. And Amanda, it has philosophy. It has monks. It has tea. It has robots. It has me having existential crises about my own life. And it's wonderful. Honestly, one of the best, like very quick reads that I've read in a while. And you should go pick it up. Ah, delightful. I'm going to have to check it out. And as always, we keep the recommendations we make every week. If it's a book, it's both in the description of this episode and at spiritspodcast.com slash books. Go pick it up. Go buy a book. And if you're not in the position to buy a book or you're waiting for your library to get one of the books that we've recommended in, why not listen to a podcast from the Multitude brand of podcasts? You absolutely should. I know several of you found Spirits through Potterless, but now it's time for some of you to find Potterless through Spirits. This is where our friend Mike Schubert makes his way through the Harry Potter series as a grown man for the very first time. Every week, he is joined by a Harry Potter fan to make fun, plot holes, make incorrect predictions, and just bask in the silliness and eccentricities of all of the characters. There's like almost 200 episodes of Potterless that you can catch up on, including not just the books and canonical materials, but that's including spinoff stuff and fan-made content like a very Potter musical. I was on that one so much fun. And listen, it's energetic. It's funny. It's silly. It'll make you not just kind of nostalgic, but also thoughtful about the kinds of stuff that you loved as a child. So go to potterlesspodcast.com to start listening or search for Potterless in your podcast app today. Awesome. Well, everyone, we hope you thoroughly enjoy Spirits Podcast episode 242, Ghosts and Indigenous Spirits with Owl Going Back. We are so excited to have author Al going back on the show with us today. Al, welcome. Please let our audience know who you are and what you write. Well, my name's Al going back. I've been writing professionally for over 30 years. I, I do novels, children's books, comics, short stories. I am a uh, HWA Lifetime Achievement Award winner, a two-time Bram Stoker Award winner, uh, Nebula Award nominee, and a Storytelling Worlds Award honor recipient, which is kind of a mouthful to say. I'm best known for doing horror and fantasy. 
a bunch of those awards happened in the last year. So congratulations on your uh, your full award shelf. Yeah, well, thank you. I got uh, was announced that I won the Lifetime Achievement Award, and I was up for the, the for best novel of the year. And then COVID hit, and I you know, couldn't even go to the convention to accept the award. So I think it's a curse. I think I brought this down <laughs> upon everybody. And I've been looking for a volcano and, and a virgin, so I can just throw the trophies in there. But exactly. volcanoes and virgins are hard to find in Florida. Yeah, yeah, not a lot of volcanic activity in Florida, unfortunately. A lot of paranormal stuff, though. A lot. I feel like everybody is going to have a particularly wild 2022 convention circuit, so I'm just preparing myself for that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back to the conventions. I've already got some lined up, including an appearance at uh, this year's World Fantasy Convention in Montreal. Oh, so lovely. I'm really looking forward to going to Canada. Quite a spooky city, I think. Mm. Is it? Well, I love I love spooky cities. I mean, when I'm not writing, I'm usually out researching folklore or weird monster sightings or haunted places. I I, I love uh, especially when I can tie in the folklore and the haunted places with American history. Well, I'm very excited to get to that. I feel like we should start a little earlier. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about whether or not you grew up reading horror, because I feel like a lot of horror writers that I know obviously were big fans of horror. Very much you're an outlier if you don't like horror, but you're writing horror, which I have met a few of those people. But did you grow up reading horror? Did you have particular authors that were like an inspiration for you? Or was there a moment where you like stopped and thought, oh, I could write this too? Well, it was, I started really young with the scary stuff. When I was six or seven, I was getting scholastic books from the school, from my little grade school. And I remember books like Ghost of Dibble Hollow, which were ghost stories, I being fascinated by ghost stories. Uh, when I was nine years old, my mother gave me my very first allowance, and it was 50 cents. And the town, nearby town, we, we lived out in the country, and the closest town had a population of 1,200. And there was no bookstores or anything like that, but they had a, a small drugstore. It had a magazine rack. And there on the on the magazine rack was Famous Monsters of Filmland, a magazine that was covered on the cover was covered with werewolves. So I spent my first 50 cents on a monster magazine and became addicted to universal movies and monsters and then fell in with love, anything horror, anything scary. Edgar Allan Poe, I read a lot of. I mean, Lovecraft, you know, I was I was living for the scary stuff when I was a kid. I was kind of the oddball monster kid. I was also the oddball monster kid. So I feel you there. <laughs> <laughs> I still was, am. I'm still, still a monster kid. Was there a particular um, universal classic monster that was like, oh, this is my guy, this guy right here, he's mine? I loved them all, but I really I liked The Creature from the Black Lagoon because that was a very scary movie. And it's, it's so funny and it's amazing to me that all these years later, I'm actually friends with Rico Browning, who played the creature in all the underwater scenes. And I think I look back on that and reflect on it often, like, how, my God, how cool is that that I'm friends with the creature? <laughs> that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. That's amazing. Uh, so obviously, you're a horror writer. A lot of your novels like uh, Coyote Rage and Crota, they draw from Native history and stories. When you do your writing, I just want to talk about your process a little bit. Do you kind of approach these stories as like, okay, I want to tell a story about skinwalkers, for example, or do you start somewhere and then kind of begin to incorporate Native folklore and history as you build out the story? Or is it kind of a mix depending on which book you're writing? It, it depends on the book. I mean, when I did uh, Darker Than Night, which is my second novel, uh, I, I was reading, a, uh, researching supernatural stuff, and I came across an article about a place in Spain. This little old lady had a house in Spain, and she had stains start appearing on the floor. And as they darkened, they took on the shape of human faces. Well, the whole little village got involved in this, and they dug up the floor three times, and every time they put new tile down, the faces would appear again. And I saw the photograph of it, and they were terrifying. 
And they finally dug up the, the tile and the concrete. And it turned out her little house was built over a cemetery where they put people who had been, died and been tortured in Inquisition. And I was like, my God, how terrifying is that? You're sitting there eating your cornflakes and you look down at your floor and there's a face looking up at you. And that was the whole inspiration for the story. And then I, I tied that in with things I already knew about Native American folklore, like the Hopi people believing that this is the fourth level, that their people came up from a level below ground, the third level. They came up through an opening in, in the Grand Canyon area called the Sipapuni. And I was like, that kind of ties in with the, the evil creatures and the faces on the floor. So it was kind of like one inspiration here. And I already had the background from the Hopi story. So I just kind of combined them. I love that. That's such a cool combination. You mentioned skinwalkers. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? Skinwalkers have always been fascinating because I'm fascinated with shapeshifters. There's a lot of stories about shapeshifters and the skinwalkers, the Navajo beliefs that, you know, that, that the witches can change shape. And it's not just in their folklore. These people really believe these things. I mean, they, they avoid them and do things to stay away from where they might be. And I was, I've read about them for years. And then I came across a passage once where it said about them the changing shape, but not making a transformation like Lon Chaney Jr. and the Wolfman, where they actually had to peel their skin off and turn it inside out. And I thought that was so fascinating. So I've got to do a skinwalker story. I've got to do a shape changer. And, you know, a lot of the stories from the people back in the old days, when you listen to these stories or their folklore, they used to be able to change your shapes. We used to be able to talk to the animals. And I wanted to incorporate that into Coyote Rage. I wanted to incorporate the stuff that, that was believed with the stuff that we're still seeing and believing today. That's amazing. And what stories did you grow up with? What did you grow up thinking about and fearing or hoping to see? I grew up with a lot of the, the Native culture stories. I mean, my grandmother told me a lot. I had a grandmother who I got to thank her for a lot of my weirdness. Also, uh, a, a Native witch. And she used to, you know, introduce me to things like uh, CBS Radio Mystery Theater. And she used to believe about telling me stories about the screams and the murders in the night that she heard in the woods behind her. So she got me started with a lot of the, the really crazy stuff. So when I was a kid, I was researching UFOs, Bigfoot. I was always like, dear God, I want to see this. I want to see a Sasquatch. And then I lived out in the country. We were on five acres of land surrounded by a national forest and it would get dark. I'm in this little mobile home and I'd say, God, remember I wanted to see a Sasquatch? Well, it's nighttime now. Cancel that. Let's wait for daylight. <laughs> not today. Not today, please. <laughs> Especially the woods. The woods have so many scary things just happening sound wise that I just I would not want to hear anything like that while I'm alone by myself. Well, I reflected upon that on the opening of Crota, where I have a, a person walking down a lonely dirt road and he hears noise in the woods and a rabbit can sound ferocious. I mean, it can sound really big. And if you're dark on a lonely road by yourself, it's terrifying if you hear anything. It sure is. We had a um, fire pit out by my mother-in-law's house. She's out in like the woods in Delaware. And all of a sudden, like I left to go take a shower, but my husband came up and he was like, there were these two foxes and they scared the shit out of us because they just <laughs> ran at us and they were like yelping and just this little scampering feet. He's like, it was the most terrified I've ever been in my entire life. I'm like, yeah, because it's the dark woods. It's not good. Well, Crota was inspired by actually real events in my life. The, the opening chick chapters talk is a real place I, I drew upon my my aunt lived across from a catholic cemetery it was a creepy catholic cemetery and it had a cross in the middle of it, it always seemed to glow at night and the whole place is surrounded by a national forest i mean she was nothing around her and in the summer of 1973 i believe when i was still a teenager there was a summer that us kids were not allowed to play outside because every night after dark something would scream and nobody knew what it was. And this was an area in the Midwest that didn't have bears. It didn't supposedly have panthers. It didn't have wolves. But we'd hear this every night. So we had to stay in because there was some creature stalking the woods. And my cousin one day took me into the forest during the daytime. And he showed me this tree. 
and there was huge claw marks going down the tree and they were higher than I could reach. And I was already six foot then. Wow. So something had stood there and clawed this tree up and we never knew what it was, but that became the inspiration for Crota. So I opened a story in that same area. That is incredible. And since, okay, since you've mentioned cemeteries and you mentioned in your email a couple of stories that you yourself had, you know, potentially paranormal encounters with, I know Coyote Rage, part of it is set in the Greenwood Cemetery in Orlando, which is one of the most haunted places in central Florida. And we jokingly on this show all the time say Florida is probably the most haunted state in terms of just like the amount of weird stories you hear come out of the state. But you then dropped the bomb that you were the full-time caretaker of the cemetery for almost eight years. Tell us about that. (laughs) Well, the Sexton was a fan of my books and he had an opening for a caretaker. He said, how would you like to come out here and you can be inspired by all the dead people and, you know, all the spookiness and and write stories. And I said, well, you know, sure. The cemetery Greenwood dates back to like 1880. Uh, It's got like 75,000 burials in it. It's the oldest skating community in the city and it's very haunted. (laughs) During the day, I have actually sat there on a cart one day when I was taking a break and looked up and saw an angry man walking towards me. And right before he got to me, he disappeared. Wow. If I don't make your your hiney get small nothing in the world will i mean it'll freak you out but that was kind of common stuff i mean well you know it's things like that happen are you i went out there at nighttime many times and the first time i'd actually seen i've heard stories about shadow people but i went out there the last time i was there and i was going down the hill and i started seeing look like figures walking in front of me and my wife was with me and i said do you see what i'm seeing and she said it looks like people walking in front of us i'm like okay time to turn around and go back into the office but yeah you see stuff like that out there common because it's such an old historic cemetery yeah and i mean it's got a lot of history like you said and most most like people who are like ghost people will be like oh well you know cemeteries usually aren't haunted because like oh like what do those ghosts have like any sort of memory or connection to but like when you have that much history there and you have so many bodies of course you're going to start having some sort of experience like that that's terrifying like can you count on one hand how many experiences like that you had or was it like constant and common it was constant i mean they had a sense of humor i mean we'd start to go out and do some work and you know look back in the the five gallon metal gas can sitting on the brick street and it didn't fall off because you would have heard it or somebody actually picked it up and set it down just messing with us, you know, or somebody stepping on the gas pedal when you're sitting there with your foot on the brake and just little things that were common, hearing footsteps walking down the halls or hitting cold spots. See, Greenwood, what makes it active is when the city of Orlando bought the cemetery, took over the cemetery, made it the official city cemetery, they closed all the other cemeteries and city limits and they moved the bodies there oh. in unmarked graves. Oh, my. So you got that. You've got people who, who are buried there who have been lynched. You've got several pauper sections. You've got three children's section. And you also have a section where they buried people from Sunnyland, which was uh, the mental institution. And the only one they gave markers there were for the children. So you got a lot of bodies there who, who have no identification. Wow. And the city doesn't even know how many people were there. We estimate between uh, 65,000 and 85,000. Wow. Wow. You would think that the city would be able to tell how many bodies they moved there, but apparently not. (laughs) No, no. You go there and it looks like there's nobody there, but it's full. We've taken ground penetration x-rays and you could see them and they they weren't a mass channel burial. They were individual graves. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Do you have any thoughts or suspicions or intuition about 
Like what ghosts want? That's something we talk about very often on the show is when you see things you can't explain, feel things have, you know, prophet like dreams, however the sort of like uncanniness happens. We often find ourselves speculating about why. Is it pattern? Is it unfulfilled? Is it love? You know, is it strong emotion? Um, and I wonder if you've ever thought about that. I think sometimes they just want the recognition to let people know they're still around. Mm. Uh, with a native culture, we don't believe death is a final thing. We just think it's a, a, a journey into another world. I mean, it's just one door closes, another one opens. So we believe when we die and go into spirit form, we can actually come back and be with our families and be spirit guides. The concept of going to a far off place called heaven and never being able to return and visit your loved ones, that would be a punishment. Yeah. You want to be around the people you, you love and you want to be able to help them, even if you're not in physical form. So sometimes it's a matter of being recognized. Sometimes there's anger one of the figures I saw standing by a grave, uh, the, I can't, I don't know for sure if it was him, but I, I did see him when I was out there when I walking around, I saw a person standing there looking at me and it was the original photographer for Orlando and his wife had died one year and his daughter had uh, been killed the other. Wow. So he had a lot of, you know, there's a lot of anger and a lot of loss there. So this might've been the same person who came up to my car because I was in the same area. So you, sometimes you just put it, you recognize, sometimes there's a life cut short. There's four people buried at Greenwood had died in the Pulse massacre. Pulse is about maybe mm. a mile or two down the road. Wow. So you got a lot of, a lot of energy there, you know, and children and stuff. And, you know, so it's all combined. Plus the, the people who have the unmarked graves. I mean, they were relocated. That's got to disturb, you know, disturb the spirit, disturb what, the, you know, the energy you're moving the bodies. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And again, going back to your idea of recognition, there's no markers. They're not being recognized. Exactly. And, you know, some people just... Don't look for things like that. If I, I think uh, spirits are attracted to somebody who's a believer or somebody's maybe more sensitive to that. You hear stories about children to see them all the time because, well, children, you, you don't tell them they can't. Children don't know that they can't see spirits. Children don't know that they can't see these things. So they, they, you always hear little kids, well, mommy, I see that guy over there. So they're more receptive because they haven't been told for 20 years that, no, that's impossible. So they still have that belief. They still have that openness about them. Amanda, making art or selling things that you make is an extremely fulfilling thing, but the logistics of it can be so complicated that it kind of puts a damper on things. I know that for a fact. But luckily, someone who is passionate about things like logistics and order management is ShipStation. ShipStation, no matter what you sell, either on Shopify, on Etsy, or on your own website, ShipStation funnels all of your orders into one simple interface that you can manage from anywhere, even your cell phone, which if you're a small business owner, you're usually on the go, you usually don't have a laptop in front of you, from your cell phone, very useful. You'll even get access to amazing discounts with major carriers, including UPS, FedEx, and USPS. It's easy to compare carriers and choose the best solution for you every single time. And with ShipStation, small businesses can now access the same rates usually reserved for like Fortune 500 companies without the contracts or the commitments. So you can ship more in less time for a lot less money. Just use our offer code SPIRITS to get a 60-day free trial that's two months free of no-hassle, stress-free shipping. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in SPIRITS. That's shipstation.com. Enter the promo code SPIRITS and make ship happen. Julia, I know that you and I both understand the feeling of laying in bed before you go to sleep or in the middle of the night and just thinking, man, why is it that at this time in particular, I just rethink all of my life choices. I, I dwell on all the things that I did wrong. 
I it's summer. I want to get up. I want to do things the next day. I want to just be like fancy free and and carefree and just free in, in all ways. But sometimes your brain doesn't really let you happen. And so that's why I really appreciate that if you're feeling blue or need a mental reset, it is a really good time to try Calm. We love partnering with Calm because they are the number one mental wellness app and they give you tools that improve the way you feel. You can clear your head with guided daily meditations, improve your focus with their curated music tracks, which is really fun to uh, work to if you're somebody like me who likes to have kind of like a background noise and grew up with a lot of screaming babies in the house. And so I just need something on in order to focus. Or, of course, drift off to dreamland with Calm's imaginative sleep stories. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. They want you to sleep more, stress less, live better, with Calm. So for listeners of the show, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash spirits. Go to calm.com slash spirits for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash spirits. We had someone tweeted us being like, I'm really glad the girls from Spirits spell out calm because I didn't realize that calm and calm are pronounced differently in other states. <laughs> sure are. Sure are. Sure are. And Julia, something else that uh, really makes me feel good and secure is that when I'm walking around the neighborhood running errands or like venturing out on my own, I have my sweet little blue birdie in my bag. And this helps me keep doing what I love with added peace of mind. And before I leave the house, I always do my checklist of phone, keys, mask, wallet, Purell, chapstick, uh, you know, a little bag inside my bag that has all my like creams and things that I might need throughout the day. And Birdie is an essential addition to my routine as well. This is a personal safety alarm designed to be easy to carry and simple to use. When you activate your Birdie with just a quick pull, the alarm emits a loud siren and a flashing strobe light to help deter an attack or make you feel visible or make you feel safe. Yeah. And unlike uh, like pepper spray or other deterrents, which like might not be illegal in your state or might be like, you know, a little bit dangerous to you. Birdie's no danger to you. So you can use it confidently without like worrying about it at all. And it goes wherever you go. So it comes in multiple colors. It's got a little brass keychain that I clip so onto cute. my bag. It's so cute. And over 300,000 Birdie alarms have been sold and they have thousands of five-star reviews. So join the flock today for a safer tomorrow. And right now, She's Birdie is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase when you go to she'sbirdie.com slash spirits. Go to She's Birdie, spelled S-H-E-S-B-I-R-D-I-E dot com slash spirits for 15% off your first purchase today. That's she'sbirdie.com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. I know another uh, cemetery story for your other book, Breed, that takes place in St. Augustine. And you had another paranormal experience there that kind of inspired the book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it, there's uh, several cemeteries in St. Augustine. One's called the Talamato, which is a Catholic burial ground. And it's reputed to be haunted. And I had gone there on ghost tours and they were told some stories. But uh, one night I, I went there, it was around midnight. And the business next door left their gate open. So I snuck around to the backside of the cemetery where nobody goes, took a 35 millimeter Pentax camera, stuck up against the fence and took a couple of pictures. And I developed a film in this one photograph. There's a green beam of light hitting this crypt, this above ground grave. And standing in the beam of light is a woman. And you could see her, but you could see through her. And her, she's wearing an 1800-style dress, a wedding dress. And you can see the half veil, the hair. And you see the, the half veil she's wearing. You see her hair. You see her face. Uh, she's facing the grave. It looks like she's holding maybe flowers. But her eyes are looking right at me. And she doesn't look happy. And her face looks like a corpse. 
So I never heard anything about this. So I started asking around and people said, yeah, it's the spirit they call the bride. That she was died a week before her wedding. They buried her in her bridal gown and hundreds of people have supposedly seen her. So I started investigating St. Augustine and everybody's got a ghost story there. I've sat down with the chief of police. I've sat down with the city council members. They all have ghost stories. And if you go up there at around 10 o'clock at night, all the tourists go home to the bed and breakfast and it gets really quiet and the place gets really creepy. And we've had several encounters there. I went to the government house museum one time at nine in the morning on a Sunday with my wife. The museum's up on the second floor and I'm talking like I am now explaining something. I hear a loud shh. And I was embarrassed. I was like, oh, and I was talking too loud. And I was like, kind of started looking around. I said, well, who did that? And we walked all the way around through the museum and we were the only ones there. <laughs> so I walked back downstairs to the counter and there's this little elderly lady there. I said, ma'am, I have a question. And she said, yes, sir. I said, was I talking too loud? She's like, no. I said, you didn't just shush me. And she's like, look surprised. She said, no. I said, okay, I have another question. You ever have anything weird happen here? <laughs> and she got this wonderful little smile pointed up. She said, all the time, second floor. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure that was a lovely question for her to get, you know, to be able to kind of have that bonding moment. <laughs> shushed by a ghost. It was great. <laughs> Classic, really. I love wow. a good librarian or curator ghost. That's probably one of my favorites. That is awesome. Oh my gosh. I guess my next question would be, since you have so many of these stories, what was like the creepiest encounter that you feel like you've ever had? I mean, you write horror for a living, so it's got to be up there. <laughs> There's so many because I've, I've gone through a lot of Native American ceremonies. I've been in pipe ceremonies. I've been in sweat lodges. I've been in, you know, vision quest. My my house has got constant activity. It's like when my sons are growing up, when they have friends over, they would tell people that, you know, if you see anything at night, don't freak out. And their friends <laughs> would never come back. When, they, when I lost a house to Hurricane, Hurricane Jean in 2004, a guy was doing tile work and he wanted to come in at night and do it. And I said, well, if you come in at night, they're going to mess with you. He said, well, I don't believe in that stuff. Well, he got chased out at three in the morning and would not come back at night. When he came in in the daytime, he brought his dog. And to this day, he won't come back to my house. So, yeah, <laughs> wow. there's, there's, I think the freakiest was the Greenwood, the guy walking up to me. That one surprised me more than any because I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I was like, you know, sitting there, it's break time. I'm reading up. I was actually reading Fangoria. <laughs> I was reading the <laughs> horror magazine. And it, it walked up to, to me very angry. I was like, oh. And then, you know, you see it and disappears. And you're like, I didn't see that. And then you're like, heck, yeah, I just saw that clear as a bell. I could describe the guy. So you're like, yeah, that kind of kind of startled me. So that was probably the freakiest and seeing shadow people and things like that at night. And we did have one incident where I was out at Greenwood late at night and I was taking pictures. And in one of the pictures, there was a fog went in front of the camera. I saw it in the flash. The next day, I'm over here working on the house after the hurricane. And my son calls me from the apartment we were staying in. He goes, Dad, did you draw on the TV? I'm like, draw on the TV? What are you talking about? He goes, did you take your finger and draw in the dust on the TV? I'm like, no, I saw the TV. I sat in front of the head breakfast. It was turned off. There was nothing weird. Why? So you might want to come look at this. So I went back to the apartment and there on the TV, perfectly drawn, was a little frowny face, like a little child would do it, like a small line, like a little tiny fingertip. And there was also a half sun with the lines. So I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. So I called a section of Greenwood. I said, you know, I was out in sections A and J last night. Is there anything weird out there people see? They said, well, they see a little girl all the time. I said, well, something drew on my television set. And while I'm on the phone talking to him, the sun, which was like half circle, went into a complete circle while we were standing there watching it. What? I was like, okay, something just followed us home. Oh, my God. One thing if they stay at the cemetery, you expect them there. I feel like at that point when they start following home, not so great. Not so exactly. good. Exactly. 
Well, my policy is you're welcome here as long as you don't cause trouble. It's like, you know, if, and we see stuff all the time. I see, you know, my mother passed in July from COVID and she let me know that she's still around and she was a practical joker too. So we see stuff and we don't even, it doesn't even upset us to see that anymore. We're like, okay, behave yourself, leave us alone. Don't turn the TV on in the middle of the night kind of thing. We've found that politeness is the best way of handling <laughs> exactly. ghosts on our show. <laughs> They're, they're with us. You know, we, we, you don't go that far away when you cross over. We're, we're still here. We're just in a different existence. Yeah, that's amazing. I know you also mentioned that in Coyote Rage, you talk about the Cherokee creation myths. And I would love to hear from your perspective how that world inspired you and what it is so our listeners can learn. I grew up hearing about the creation myth. And it's like the story of the Cherokees they used to tell little kids and, you know, back in the day, is once upon a time, there was a sky world called Galilati. And up there was where people and animals existed. But uh, it got too crowded. And the people wanted to find some new place. They looked down from the sky world and they saw this world. But at the time, it was just water. Nothing but water. So they wanted to find some land they could come to. So they sent down the little water beetle who landed in the water and dove down and brought up a little bit of mud on her back. And the mud started growing and growing and growing and growing and became the land that is this world that is native north america turtle island but it was really muddy and they sent down different birds and stuff trying to find a dry spot and they couldn't find it they sent down the buzzard who was the grandfather of all buzzards this was back in the day when animals and birds were much bigger than they are today and he flew over the east southeast and where his wings went down it caused his valleys and where his wings pulled up it formed mountains and he called the buzzard back said look you're going to mess the whole place up it's going to be nothing but mountains but finally the land dried and the people came down but it was the sun was too low so the the conjurers According to the story, they pushed the sun up into its place, but not before the little crawdad got his, his back turned red from the sun. <laughs> this was the original story, the creation, that we all came down from the sky world. And it ties in with a lot of the myths of the Native Americans coming from, you know, places in the sky. Or so there's some stories with the Cherokees that they came from the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades. Uh, the Choctaw Indians to this day, some of them still go to Cahokia, which is in Illinois, across the river from St. Louis, and give us little ceremonies to the sky people. This ties in a lot of legends. So I love the fact that they had Galilati had his sky world. And it was believed that back in those days that mankind and animals could all talk to each other. Uh, we lost a gift because of the way we treated animals. And animals still have the gift of communication. And anybody who's a dog or cat owner owes, knows they can talk to us. We just can't talk to them. Mm. And sometimes if you've got a cat, especially or a dog, they look at you like you're stupid because you don't understand. <laughs> a lot of some of the animals... Uh, the ones back in the day, there was a lot of creatures and they went back. Some of them went back to Galanati because they didn't like this world and the problems here. But at that time, it was not just, you know, animals, people came down, but you also had the little people, the the tall men who were the giants and all these were part of the Native American culture that's told in a lot of tribes. Uh, the Cherokees still tell stories, still have beliefs in the little people. There's uh, caves up there in, in Franklin uh, County, North Carolina, that were appear to be man-made and they're small that you can't stand upright in them. And they found little artifacts, little tools. And there's bald, what they call bald mountains up there where they say it's a home of little people where they still have their ceremonies. Now, friends of mine do the Sundance every, every year with the Lakota people out, you know, out in the, uh, South Dakota. And there is a valley out there that they call the Valley of the Little People where they won't go. And a friend of mine who was camping in that area said he woke up at night because his tent was being pulled. And he unzipped the tent and he looked across at his friend's tent. And it looked like something was climbing up the tent and grabbing the fabric, but he couldn't see anything. But they were shaped, having their tent shook all night by things messing with them. Mm. 
as for the tall men, a lot of the tribes believed in these, this race of giants. I don't know if they tie it in with the Sasquatch stories or what, but even in, in the history of Florida, in the 1800s, there was a newspaper article came out where it, along the St. John's River, they found a burial ground with uh, skeletons that were eight feet tall. This was written up in the paper. They said the skulls were so big that the men would pick them up and put them on their heads as helmet. Oh, my goodness. And what was more most amazing, it said they had a double row of teeth. Now, this was written up by a legitimate paper back in that time, but nobody has any record of what happened to the skeletons or if any museums have them or where they went. But this tied in with the Indian legends of the area about the, the village, next village over being the tall men. Wow. I'm a student of history. I just always wonder, I'm like, no one knows where that went. No one wrote down like, oh, Joe took it and put it in his yard or something like that. I'm like, someone had to have noted something. Come on. Down at Lake Wales, Florida, I came across an article. It was written by, in uh, Erie, Florida, the book Erie, Florida by Mike, Mark Muncy. And it tells a story about a woman who had an orange grove. She was, there's a little figure of a man running around this orange grove, like a little gnome kind of person. And they caught it in a cage. And they called the local police who picked it up and took it away. Well, that night, they started having sounds hitting the side of their house. And what it was, was these little things outside throwing oranges at their house. And so they called the police up and said, bring it back. They brought this little thing in a cage and turned it loose. The fact that the police involved, there has to be a record somewhere of a police officer being called out to catch the capture, you know, or to ca- take away a little bitty man that's running around wild. Oof, yeah, there's so much. I love, I love my X Files theories. I'm, I'm all for yeah. it. <laughs> And speaking of Florida, when we were describing the kind of uh, forest creatures earlier or being scared by foxes and rabbits in the night, I when I have been to Florida, it's the creatures I don't hear that scare me most. Like I'll turn around and there will be a snake, a lizard, you know, a, a very <laughs> stealthy bird. Um, and I feel I've always felt that like the as someone from the Northeast, the just environment and landscape of Florida feels haunted to me. It is denser. It is wetter. It is larger. It is more colorful. And I don't know, as, as somebody who's so familiar with Florida and, and has spent so much of your life there, why is it so haunted? Why is it so interesting? How how do you feel about the state? Well, there's a lot of weird history to Florida. I mean, you got to remember, like, you know, Florida originally had dozens and dozens of Indian tribes here. And when the Spanish came through, they basically wiped them all out. Well, they enslaved the Indians. They, you know, killed them off. They used them. To, uh, they tra- The Spaniards traveled with large dog packs. They didn't bring dog food, so they would feed Indian women and children to the dogs. Uh, Columbus had talked to the Queen of Spain, Isabella, and said, said all Indians were savages and cannibals. So they, he got, she passed a law saying they could be uh, put into servitude, enslaved. Mm-hmm. And so they were. When the Spanish left Florida, they took with them 80 Indians, and that was pretty much all that was left. So you had a lot of death at that time. Now, Florida sat empty for a long time with these huge uh, cattle herds left by the Spanish. And the Seminoles came down, which originally had Creek Indians. They saw Florida was basically em- empty. And they came down and started colonizing down here. And they became powerful. And then you had the, the white people in Georgia look down and said, hey, well, wait a minute. What's these Indians do with these huge cattle ranches and living high on the hog? So they came down. So you have all this weird, you know, you've got a mixture. you you got, you know. Voodoo culture down here. You've got a large Haitian population. You've got Miami. You've got Key West, which is one of the strangest places in the country. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Key West doesn't mean West Island. It's a K Weso is what it's based on, which means Bone Island. So when the Spanish first discovered it, it was it was covered with bones and human skeletons. Wow. So you got a lot of weird stuff like that. In Miami, they used to sell you know skulls as souvenirs, Indian skulls, because Miami is basically built over b- burial grounds. So you, you do stuff like that. You just stir in the pot for acting from paranormal activity. 
Yeah, I did not know that about Key West. That is fascinating. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm almost amazed we don't have more, uh, that there is not constantly business being interrupted in Florida and people's lives by by stuff around them. But, you know, I guess people, you know, you think that your life is normal. You get used to the things that you see every day. And, you know, you don't go yelling about the things that you think are normal. Well, Florida is a place that I'll never run out of story ideas. Like they said on an episode of X-Files, all the nuts roll downhill to Florida. And it's true. We have some of the craziest people in the country down here. Uh, we're backwards. We're redneck. We've got, you know, all kinds of cultures here. And it is, you know, it's fun. I mean, you got the crazy histories. You got the witches. You got the ghosts. You got the Spanish. You got the Indians. You pretty much got everything that you could tie in and use for stories. That is true. Yeah. Florida. <laughs> that is true about Florida. I mean, I, I, the things like, you know, I experience on a daily basis that other people freak out. I mean, I was sitting on the back of tailgate at Rollins College talking to James Billy, the chief of the Miccosukee. And it was nighttime. I hear this noise. I look over. There's this huge alligator head next to me because he's got a nine foot alligator in the back of his truck. because He's going <laughs> to wrestle it the next day. And I'm, you know, here's I'm dark. I'm face to face with the alligator. Thank God his mouth was taped. I'm like, oh, James, 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 get your gator. I'm not touching this thing. <laughs> Why did you tell me it was there? <laughs> just living life on the edge. Yeah, you just sitting on it. You're just thinking nothing of it because you're in the city. You're at Rollins College in downtown Winter Park, which is a very uppity community. But you've got a live gator in the back of the truck because you know they just brought it off the reservation. And this is like a typical Florida day. Wow, <laughs> amazing. Wow. wow, is right. Is there any mythology, folklore, books that you love? Things that you think our audience would really enjoy, or a question we didn't ask you? Well, if you, if you want to research, re, uh, research anything Cherokee, there's a wonderful book. It's like the Miss, Miss uh, Ceremonies and Sacred Formulas of the Cherokee, written, written by James Mooney. And he wrote it back in the 1800s. He was a government uh, researcher who went out amongst the Cherokees and recorded this. And if it wasn't been for him, a lot of the, the folklore would have been lost. There are a lot of wonderful folklore books out there. You just got to go to the nonfiction section. The reason I, I, I incorporate it in fiction is because I want to reach out to people who would not, normally not understand these or receive these or would never ever in their lives think of reading a nonfiction book. My ancestors did teaching stories. They would teach the children, you know, a story, but there's always a lesson in everything they taught. They threw it out there. And if you didn't get the lesson, then you didn't deserve to know. Mm. They do it the same way with medicine. The old medicine men today will throw out a teaching thing. And if you didn't get it, it wasn't meant for you. So I wanted to do the same thing with my stories. In fact, my first four novels were are used at the Orange County Correctional Facility for Youthful Offender Program. And that's in Orlando. They didn't know I was local. So I get this package from them. And it's from Orange County Correctional Facility. And I'm thinking, my God, what have my sons done now? <laughs> and I open it up and they have these people in jail. And they're, they're, uh, it was a eight or 13 week course. And they would read my book and do a report on the end. And then to be rewarded for doing this, they were their families were allowed to bring in a home-cooked meal. Wow. I was like, wow, 15-year-olds and 14-year-olds who were in jail as adults are allowed to have their families come in and visit them. So I called them up and said, hey, look, you know, I'd be glad to come down and talk to the kids. I said, but I'm surprised you're using my books because you're using like Crota and I kill people in horrible ways in Crota. <laughs> I go, yeah, but you're doing the whole, you know, respect your elders, respect your land, live close to the earth stuff in your stories. I said, well, that's how, you know, teaching stories work. And I've always considered myself more of a storyteller than a writer. And the kids were getting something out of it. So I went down and visited these kids. They were some of the best audience I've ever had. These kids had, they had amazing minds. And it's just, they screwed up in life and somebody didn't get to them sooner to keep them from going down the wrong path. But when they walked out of the room, they were like the guy saying, well, that kid's in for murder. That kid's in for bank robbery. This mm. kid's in for this. And it's a shame because you're looking at 14 year olds who are going to spend the rest of their life in prison just because they messed up. Maybe if they would have discovered books earlier, because some of them never even read a book in their life, maybe they, they wouldn't have had happened to them what they did. 
Yeah. Crime is in response to a need. So often you don't you have an unmet need. You're in a desperate situation. I bet those stories, you know, they carry them close to this day. Well, with the native people and back in the times, even with, you know, not just the Cherokee, Lakota people and stuff, when uh, when young people got to a certain age, they would uh, assign an uncle or, or an outsider to basically teach them because they knew Teenagers don't listen to their parents, even in native cultures. So if you had a, a father figure, an uncle come in and help teach the kids or, or with the women, they had, the grandmothers would help teach the, the, the girls and they were more willing to learn. So if a lot of these kids would have had an outsider come in, they probably would have been more receptive to it rather than button heads with their parents going through that adolescent stage. Is there a native story or a native legend that you feel very strongly about that you wish more people knew about? but like obviously isn't talked about in uh, modern media for obvious reasons. You know, that would ha have to be one I have to think on because, you know, all the, all the lessons are important to me, all the, yeah. you know, because the way I look at it, people should know the history of this country. You get to understand people by their culture, by their folklore, and by their stories. When I was growing up, people knew Greek mythology and they knew North mythology, and that was taught in schools even. Or if you read a fantasy novel, it was always medieval fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why are we memorizing everything from somewhere else and not knowing our own culture? I would tell people, and I still today, I say, if you want to learn about Native Americans, go to a museum in Germany. Because they had better museums about Native Americans because they were more interested. A lot of kids today, it's, it's the problem with young people and with people in general, is we've cut off our roots. Everybody's from somewhere else. And then you look at societies that have the strong roots, whether it's Native American, whether it's Jewish, whether it's Irish, they always seem to be a stronger family. But there's a lot of people who've lost that root connection. So they're kind of like, you know, blowing in the wind kind of thing. So I tell people, I say, look, you know, I don't like the name Native American for indigenous people, because I think anybody born in this country is Native American. I, and I believe, and I get in trouble for saying this a lot of times, I believe, you know, if you're born in this country, the history of this country is part of your, your foundation. You should know it. And mm. uh, for years, the, the elders would tell me, go out and share this with people. And that's what the elders used to do. They share stories. They share their songs. because They wanted to show people how Native Americans look at the world. Uh, unfortunately, the recent years, everybody's getting like, oh, I don't want to share this. You can't have access to this. Like, no, it's supposed to be shared. That's how you understand. It's like, you know, if you don't understand, then you're, you're not going to understand the people. There's always going to be that strangeness, you know, that, that separation, that wall. You need to tear the walls down so we know each other. Absolutely. There is a difference between, you know, taking someone else and their tradition as your own or cherry picking things that you think are aesthetic or interesting and saying, like, let me get to know you better. You know, I'm a visitor, I'm a settler, whatever the, the case may be. And there is a history here that far predates me. It, it'll only enrich your life to learn about it, you know. Well, it's like powwows. Powwows are open to anybody. A lot of people think you can't go there unless you're Native American. No, you're you're welcome to come in and see the dancing. You're welcome to come in and listen to the songs and talk to the people and visit because they want to share. They want to share their their things. When I, I started writing, I, I noticed that nobody was understanding how Native Americans look at things differently than normal people because of the way they were raised. So I wanted to express that in stories. And usually I'll do that by having a Native American character and a non-Native character. So you see that conflict. So that way you can understand both sides of the story. Well, uh, hopefully once uh, once COVID is, you know, no more and we can get down to Florida, it would be nice to to maybe do a powwow and see see what's going on there. Come on down. We'll do St. Augustine. I'll take you to all the spooky places at dark. I want to meet the bride. <laughs> well, we know what's coming. We sign up. Got to be, you got to meet Lily too, because Lily's a fascinating story. There's a, there's an inn there called Saint Francis Inn, 
The story is Room 3A is haunted by the ghost of a black servant girl named Lily. And the story was she fell in love with the nephew of the owner of the place back in the day. And they sent her away and he hung himself in the attic. Well, he hung himself, but it was her ghost. And I could never figure that out. I went and stayed there and researched it. And after Breed came out, friends of mine wanted to go and take pictures of that room. So we went there at nighttime and 3A, the light was on in the room, but there were shutters halfway up the window. So the lower half of the window was closed with wooden shutters. But they took a picture, a digital picture. The picture, when they showed me the photo, clear as a bell is a black woman sitting in the window holding a black baby wrapped in a blanket. Mm. And, and she's got a, a bonnet around her head and it's a servant woman. I was like, whoa. I mean, there's no way that anybody could have been in the window. I was standing there and took the picture and the shutters are closed in the bottom. And we're like, this, this is little Lily. I said, but that explains why the story is like, okay, why does she haunt the room and not the guy that hung himself? Well, she's got his baby and she's waiting for the father to come home. Oh. And also explains maybe a little twist. They said she was sent away, but back in those days, if you had a child of a wealthy, prominent business person, they may not have just sent you away. Mm-hmm. Something terrible could have happened to her and the child. Oof. That's, a, that's a heartbreaking one right there. Oh, boy. Al, we so appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about your process, your many stories. And I can't wait for our listeners to check out your work. So thank you again. Any, any parting words uh, for us and our audience today? Uh, no, thank you for having me here. I, I really appreciate it. I love sharing folklore. I love Myth, mythology, folklore, spooky stories. You know, I love cryptids. Anything weird, I, I enjoy hearing about it. And some of them, you know, some of the folklore is based on truth. We just sometimes we just don't know which ones. Yeah, that's that's the motto of our podcast right there. You, you nailed it on the head there. And they're all worth learning. Totally. Well, remember, everybody. Stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafidi, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.